are many factors that affect our ability to be healthy, and we unfortunately do not all have the same access to care. Barriers can be related to cost, discrimination, location, sexual orientation, and gender identity, to name just a few. This is Megan Schaefer with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we complement Oxford Academic's extensive health equity collection of journal articles, book excerpts, and online resources by speaking with two medical experts who, in addition to caring for patients, have dedicated their careers to addressing inequity in public health. For our first interview, we welcome Dr. John Brody, who spoke with Christine Scalora from Cape Town, South Africa, where he has worked since the late 1990s. We discussed Dr. Rohde's extensive career that has brought him from the United States to Bangladesh, to Haiti, among others, about the ways in which global health has become more equitable and the many areas in which progress is still needed. Thanks, Dr. Rohde. Can you give us a quick summary of your career and some of the places you've practiced medicine? Sure. I'm Dr. John Rohde, speaking to you from Cape Town, South Africa. I graduated with my medical degree from Harvard Medical School and trained in pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Boston, the largest pediatric center in the country. In 1968, I went to Dhaka, which was then East Pakistan, and carried out research on cholera, particularly looking at the physiology of the massive fluid losses, and was there when the development of oral rehydration occurred in our research lab. In 1973, working for the Rockefeller Foundation, I was in the pediatric department and taught pediatrics and community medicine at Gajamata University in Indonesia. Uh, in 1980, I moved to Haiti, where I was the head of the Rural Health Development Project, uh, which was a nationwide effort to try and make uh, primary health care more available. 1986, I went to India for PriTech, or that was Primary Healthcare Technologies, uh, under AID, USAID auspices, but I then joined UNICEF and was responsible for guiding James Grant, the executive director, uh, in the development of the child survival and development revolution. I stayed in India for 12 years, and in 1997, I came to South Africa, to the new South Africa, to direct the Equity Project, which was aimed at trying to make a more equitable primary health care system in this country. I've been here ever since. In 2004, I participated in and was a fundamental designer of the James P. Grant School of Public Health in Bangladesh. And since my retirement around that time, I've been consultant in Afghanistan, Uganda, and for the Global Fund. Yeah, thank you. You've certainly had a very interesting career. And I'm curious what you've learned about global health equity in that time. Well, global health equity is an issue that is always under undergirded what I was involved in doing, because to me, the major issue in global health equity is doing the simple things that you can do for everyone. And this is where we started in UNICEF with the idea of GOBI, which is growth promotion, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, and immunization. Getting those done would save probably half of all the children who were dying in the world 
uh, with just implementation of those interventions. And the idea was once you had done those things for everyone, you could layer on newer interventions one at a time as a health service was capable of doing this. This we felt was much more important than trying to develop comprehensive services, which could only reach a few people. I guess our, our common uh, slogan was keep it simple, stupid, or kiss as people joke about it. The second principle of uh, equity is measuring what you do. The reason immunization achieved such high levels in the 1980s was largely because of the surveillance and survey systems that were put into place so that the end user knew where they were in terms of coverage of immunization. And simple information systems make user decisions better and, and more effective. A third point is to develop an equity index. And we developed such an index that we used in South Africa with about 28 indicators, which could be objectively measured. Things like drug stockouts, uh, average number of, uh, of patients seen per day per nurse, which enabled us to move nurses around as the, as the caseload varied. Um, we had use rates of uh, obviously of immunization and family planning and we then compared the different areas of the country using this index uh, and could focus on those areas which had lower scores on the index as a place where our resources our training and our inputs should be made another point in equity is involving the community in decisions um, it doesn't mean that the community just says what they want. They'll always tell you they want ambulances, x-ray machines, and a hospital. But um, involving them to understand and get in a dialogue with the community is very important for assuring that they understand what you're trying to do. They have been heard, and you try and deliver on their expectations. And the final critical element, I would say, is the use of community health workers and being sure that they are linked to the formal health system. In many countries, they are volunteers and not paid anything or just given uh, stipends for their travel or uh, provided with drugs. This is sometimes all a country can afford, but they must be integrated into the formal system so that when a community health worker sends someone into the system, they're accepted and they get good feedback and they feel like they're a part of something. So those are the major principles we've found in, in terms of developing health equity. So based on those principles, um, can you give us a few examples of specific institutions uh, you've worked with, whether those are local or global, um, and how those collaborations led to improved outcomes? Sure. Well, in my career, I've, as I told you, I've, I've lived overseas since I graduated from medical school in uh, 1967. And I didn't expect to go out to the developing countries for so long, but it was been over 50 years that I've been working in them. So I have quite a few collaborations. The first was at the Cholera Research Laboratory, today the ICDDRB in Bangladesh. And there we recognized that having diarrhea as a major cause of death all around us uh, was an important element of understanding what was going on and how to deal with it. So the first important 
collaboration was was trying to develop a, a technology to deal with diarrhea that was affordable and workable and being living in the field, living in DACA, where the major cause of death was diarrhea and cholera was an annual uh, epidemic in the area, um, was a, an important part of how, uh, how we really were able to understand what it would take to develop oral rehydration. That had a really uh, acid test, as it were, when the Bangladesh Liberation War started and 10 million refugees fled to India. And I worked with people in the refugee camps to introduce oral rehydration. And uh, we were able to substantially reduce the deaths from diarrhea. At another time, I was in the University of Gajamada in central Java, where my major effort was to get medical students out into the villages. We developed, in fact, a six-year program from the very first day students got to medical school for the full six years of their training so that they had one village that they could reach not far from the university where they would go at least once a week and carry out some particular exercises related to important primary health care problems. This meant that the students had had as very much a part of their learning rather than just in a hospital and seeing clinical cases uh, in a hospital setting, that they spent a day every week of their five years, six years in medical school. The sixth year, they, they spent full time out in the village. But the five years, one day a week, they'd go back to the same families and interact with them. They'd weigh the children, they'd immunize, they'd check for tuberculosis, they'd encourage the development of latrines and uh, safe water supply and, and, and the like. I worked for many years with UNICEF, uh, particularly uh, with the executive director, James P. Grant, who was the executive director for 15 years before his unfortunate demise in 1995. But there, the whole point was reaching every child with the essential tools. And this is something that many people have not fully appreciated about the UNICEF strategy, is the idea that until you've reached every child with the most critical interventions, that your health services are not really performing in an equitable way. And we felt, and UNICEF has performed, believing that reaching every child was more important than reaching a few children with everything that is comprehensive health care. Uh, from UNICEF in India, where I lived for 12 years, I came to South Africa, and there we had a real, a very interesting challenge. The new government, which came in, in uh, under President Mandela in uh, 1994, uh, was dedicated to redressing the disparities in the health services. And so our whole project, the equity project, which started in one of the poorest provinces, but then extended to the entire country, was designed to be sure that the health services in a measurable way were equitable and redressing disparity, which had previously occurred throughout the very fractionated health services in South Africa. Finally, I was uh, a member of the Global Fund Technical Advisory Group, and the Global Fund for HIV, TB, and Malaria 
uh, places major emphasis on vulnerable groups. Uh, the key targets of their interventions uh, are people who would normally be uh, outside of the system. And so most of our activities in the Global Fund for these three diseases was trying to reach beyond what the normal health system was reaching, and particularly to social groups who were normally excluded. So that really is how we, uh, some of the ways in which uh, collaborations worked towards making healthcare more available for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I liked hearing about the importance of reaching, you know, every child instead of reaching a few um, very well. I thought that was an interesting um, perspective. I just had a clarification question. You've mentioned the term um, oral rehydration a few times. What what exactly is that? <laughs> okay, I guess I've lived with it so much that it seems ORT. Uh, fundamentally, remember that re dehydration was the major cause of death 50 years ago of children. Something estimated up to 15 million children a year died of dehydration with diarrhea from ranging from cholera to rotavirus to other things. And at that point, it was believed that the only thing you could do was use an intravenous rehydration, expensive, requiring health professionals to do it, to put in an intravenous catheter, expensive because the fluid has to be sterile and so forth. And so that was the work we did at the cholera laboratory in Dhaka in the late 1960s, developing an oral mixture that could be absorbed from the sick intestine. Uh, and yet it's a rather simple solution. In fact, uh, it's often been called the simple solution to life. It's comprised, say, per liter of water, uh, one puts in five grams of salt, uh, or just table salt, uh, some bicarbonate of soda or other base to offset the acidosis, uh, a bit of potassium, uh, because potassium is lost in the diarrhea and that can have effects on the, on the body. And it's all facilitated the absorption by glucose, particularly, although table sugar can be used, it's not as effective. So basically salt, sugar, and water are the fundamental elements of oral rehydration. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, returning back to our original list of questions, you recently wrote a an entry on 10 lessons from a career in global health. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how did you get into this work and why would you recommend this work for younger students and doctors? Well, I, I got into this work somewhat serendipitously because uh, at the time I graduated from medical school in the mid-1960s, uh, all newly formed doctors in the United States had to do uh, military service. And I joined the United States Public Health Service, expecting that I would go abroad for three, maximum four years. And uh, I went to Bangladesh, as I indicated, and uh, decided that the problems were both widespread and relatively simple and that I could make a much bigger uh, impact if I stayed working in such poor countries rather than coming back to the United States where I was trained 
and felt that whether I was there or not didn't make an awful lot of difference unless it was to the few patients that I might in, be involved with. And this is why I feel young people today ought to look at public health as an opportunity to interact in areas where where health is 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 not optimal and where key interventions can make a big difference to large populations. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so in what ways did global health become more equitable over the course of your career? Well, I would say that the attention to children that UNICEF led, particularly under James P. Grant as its executive director, which really spread far beyond UNICEF, USAID, for instance, really pushed for um, oral rehydration to be widely understood and practiced and available. Um, they certainly funded a great deal of the immunization and the promotion of breastfeeding uh, being so critical uh, and was being undermined by the commercial sector when when I first got out into the field. Still is to some extent, but there's been an awful lot of uh, good direction from the World Health Organization trying to limit the commercial promotion of infant feeding. Uh, so I would say the first way it became more equitable is it, it was attention to children. The second, I would say, is recognition of the value of family planning and reproductive health services to women um, as an element of, of equity, because women were, have in so many societies are largely neglected uh, if you go to a health center, you'll often see that at least for clinical care, there's a lot more males than there are females, even though women have more problems. And family planning does indeed give great value to children as well. If the proper spacing and smaller family size results in, in demonstrably better health of, of the family. I think the Alma-Ata Declaration in uh, 1978, where primary health care became the focus of WHO and UNICEF, the two sponsors, uh, has really extended during the time of my career. Uh, and many, many organizations have contributed to the extension of primary health care, which is critical to reaching everyone. And finally, I would say, especially the value of community health workers and community involvement has become more apparent and more widely implemented uh, during the last 50 years while I've been watching it and participating it in a certain sort of way. So I would say health is still a challenge, but it's far more equitable than it was 50 years ago. So what? are some of those areas where progress is still needed? Aha, uh -huh. well, uh, there is a good question and uh, thank you for that. The First of all, I would say the integration of the health system, starting at household and families up to the community and truly being responsive to and being responded to by the formal health system is very important. So many health systems are divided between private providers, uh, government systems, which are um, aimed at a single disease, say family planning or HIV, and, and that basically every household, every family has comprehensive health needs. So integration of health systems um, is important and is still needed. Uh, as I said, 
I really believe that the UNICEF approach uh, to provide something for every child and then to layer on more and more interventions as the capacity of the health system improves um, is the way to do that. But uh, we're still very short of that. I think we need better mobilization of the private sector for public health. Um, a substantial part of healthcare is delivered, not just from private practitioners in an office, but for instance, in India, the private health sector includes um, includes several million people running uh, uh, medicine shops, which call themselves doctors. They're not actually doctors. They call themselves um, medical practitioners but they're not licensed they're, uh and their training is almost entirely uh, happenstance from a job they may have had as an attendant in a, in a, in a government hospital or clinic. Um, and we've tried to mobilize them um, to bring them into the health system and to have them follow certain standards, for instance, use of oral rehydration for diarrhea or promoting immunization. And that's been an important key area that still needs a lot of work. So even from what village practitioners all the way up to the private sector as it performs in hospitals needs to be cognizant of and promotive of public health. I think another key area that must be considered is acceptance of health as a right rather than as a privilege. And I must say my own country of the United States is uh, is woefully behind in this. Uh, there's still 30 million people in the United States that don't have access to health care because they can't afford it. And health in many countries is seen as a right and the government effort is to is to be sure that that right is recognized and realized. Uh, I, this should be an integral part of any constitutional sense that the right to not only to life and liberty, but the right to health care is an important one. And finally, I would say the real progress is needed to redress poverty, especially amongst women. And that may not sound like a health issue, but of course, poverty really underlines almost all of the ill health that we have. And that's true in the United States, where the poorest parts of our country have much higher uh, maternal mortality. I think it's something like 14 times uh, women of color, particularly in the South, have 14 times the maternal mortality of men. So redressing poverty and, and uh, bringing about equity, as we're talking in this podcast, is, is a critical element that needs to be paid attention to. Yeah. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. Do you have any final thoughts? I thought in conclusion, I'd like to encourage everyone to look at the Oxford Encyclopedia of Global Health and uh, take a look at the 10 lessons that I wrote up there describing what I felt were principles that would enable someone to examine what does a career in global health mean and, and how can I make the most of my education? Uh, it focuses very much on getting out there where the problems are and working with local people uh, to encourage that they develop and earn and own the system that you develop. 
Uh, global health has evolved from a historical focus on specific tropical diseases and went to clinical care for the underserved, uh, often in, in colonial systems, to traditional public health with its in emphasis on environmental factors and preventive measures, up to the current recognition that health is a summation of an entire range of factors that impinge on families and communities to either enhance or threaten well-being. So it has had an evolution over this past post-World War II time, and it's far more concerned about the whole family and all of the factors that affect their health. So even people who have not got a medical degree uh, can contribute to the modern challenges of healthcare. Thank you for listening. Our second guest was Dr. Don Dizon, Director of the Pelvic Malignancies Program at Lifespan Cancer Institute, Head of Community Outreach and Engagement at the Cancer Center at Brown University, and Director of Medical Oncology at Rhode Island Hospital. We discussed the ways he has seen inequity in cancer treatment, some of which he has written about in blog posts for the OUP journal, The Oncologist. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Can you please give us a quick introduction of yourself? Happy to. My name is Don Dizon. I am a professor of medicine and professor of surgery here at Brown University. And I see patients with pelvic malignancies at the Lifespan Cancer Institute. I'm proudly a member of the editorial board of the oncologist and edit the section on narratives in oncology. Thank you. Um, so what are some of the ways you witness health inequity, specifically in cancer care? Well, I mean, I think the most obvious way that we see it here in Providence, Rhode Island, is um, the patients who are coming here don't speak English as a, as a natural language. Um, we have a very large immigrant population from Asia and South America. And oftentimes, uh, these are the patients who really require some handholding in terms of trying to understand not only their diagnosis, but also how the system works. And sometimes these are also the people who are not offered options that might be very complicated um, to understand. And that does include clinical trials. And it's certainly, these are the implicit biases that we see um, play out in oncology. Um, you know, this sort of not offering a clinical trial because the patient is too simple uh, to understand what that is, or because of the language barrier, it just becomes um, very difficult. Um, the other place where we see it is really in the around the um, area of financial toxicities, um, you know, particularly with uh, some of these very, very expensive modern uh, breakthroughs in oncology. They uh, the access points to these are, are, are highly variable and really dependent on whether or not someone has insurance or has state-funded uh, care. Um, you know, right now, again, in Rhode Island, if patients are covered by um, the state plan in Massachusetts called Mass Health, they are not allowed to cross state boundaries to see me for a second opinion or even receive treatment in our institution. And that's a state level decision because the state is covering their care and does take away some of those choices. So those are some of the more obvious ways that, you know, equity does uh, still play a very important part of care in oncology. Um, can I just get you to quickly sort of um, define or expand on the term financial toxicity? 
Sure. It's financial toxicity is as the inability or the struggle to afford care. And that might be, you know, everything from affording screening mammography, all the way up to the surgical care of cancer, all the way up to the medical treatments for malignancies. Um, and what's interesting about it is that some data suggests that having that um, struggling financially um, at the time of your diagnosis of cancer has a real negative impact on one's quality of life. Uh, but having your circumstances become financially difficult after you've been diagnosed during the treatment period, not only impacts your quality of life negatively, but may even shorten your survival. Um, yeah. So it sounds like there are a lot of different ways that inequity can show up in the treatment room. Um, what do you try to do as a healthcare provider to address that, recognizing that a lot of these things are big system problems? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is to ensure that, you know, um, we, we do, quote, the right thing for patients who don't speak English um, as a language, and that includes, you know, actively um, engaging with a um, hospital-based translator rather than using their child or their brother or the, even their spouse in translational services, but also realizing that clinical trials are a therapeutic option and where it is relevant, where it's available, that has to be part of that conversation and not letting the use of a translator stand in the way of offering those options is really important. Um, I also had community outreach and engagement for the Legoretta Cancer Center at Brown University. So that work is particularly important to me. Um, trying to get um, informed consents in, in languages that are common in the area is a goal of mine for the, um, the cancer center, um, because I think that's really important that people are able to read in their own language rather than sign what's called the NIH short form, which is, I talk to you about the trial, I've given you some information, sign this form to say you acknowledge both of those things are true. You know, so if, if you're talking about a clinical trial where death is a potential side effect, as it is, has to be listed with a lot of investigational drugs, it's more important that people get the information and we always want to make sure that happens. I think for financial evaluations, our institution has put in place a, a pretty aggressive pre-authorization group that can help not only get financial clearance for medications, but also understand what the co-payments are going to be like, which can stretch anywhere between 800 to several full thousand dollars per month. Um, and understanding what the patient's contribution is to care is important, not only so we can ask them if they're able to afford it, but also to seek out other ways to, to um, pick up that financial burden, I think is really important, not just to leave it up to the patient to navigate, um, but we, we actually take a very uh, involved stance in trying to address the affordability of cancer care. Yeah, that's really interesting. So as you noted, you write uh, a blog for The Oncologist. Um, in one of your posts, you wrote about caring for transgender patients with cancer. Can you talk a little bit um, about how this group in particular is vulnerable to inequity? Sure. Uh, you know, I think the most obvious way where the inequity is illustrated is the fact that we have no idea of what the experience of cancer and cancer treatments are like for sexual and gender minoritized 
people with cancer. And that's because we're not even collecting demographics around sexual orientation and gender identity. In fact, it was only this year that the National Academies for Science, Engineering, and Mathematics, or NASM, put out a report calling for the NIH to start routinely collecting what's called SOGI data across NIH activities. Uh, because coming into today, there is no good data set to look at the experiences of sexual and gender minoritized people. You know, in terms of the inequities that are experienced, we know that people in the SGM communities experience a lot of hostilities in medicine, you know, uh, and it's worse uh, for the transgender community. And these um, hostilities oftentimes result in delays of care or not even being offered care that would be standard across um, genders and ages. For example, you know, lesbian and bisexual women are oftentimes not offered or not, um, they don't have the opportunity to undergo pap smears. So there's a huge um, risk that's not addressed of cervical cancer in those populations. And maybe it's because of a myth that if you're not having sex with men, you're not at risk for HPV. Or maybe it's because um, no one asks them if this is something they're interested in, or maybe they refuse to have it done because they don't feel particularly safe in that medical situation. Uh, what we do know is that good data now shows that they are not being screened. And that's true for mammography, and that's true for prostate cancer screenings as well. We also know, based on a big survey that was done by the LGBTQ Cancer Network, that the post-treatment experience is very different. And probably the most um, illustrative of that is that among those who um, uh, we asked, were you provided information about fertility preservation, almost 80% said they were not. And, you know, that again could be a bias on the clinician part saying, you know, this is a gay man, he's not interested in having children. Or, you know, this is a trans person who's, he doesn't care about his uterus, so, or his ovaries. So, we'll, you know, he won't mind if we, um, uh, you know, put him into um, premature ovarian failure. Uh, but these opportunities of fertility preservation are important. And this myth that they're not interested in kids really is not supported by the facts today. Yeah, that all sounds just remarkably just frustrating. Um, mm. I did not know some of those things you were talking about. You've also written about cancer care on the island of Guam, where you were mm -hmm. born and raised. Um, so how does location affect people's access to health care? I think it affects it a great deal, and certainly, you know, access to clinical trials for for until very recently was restricted. So, if you had cancer on the island, and you were interested in exploring um, investigational options, you had to leave the island. Um, for a lot of things, surgical oncology was not something available routinely on the island, and certain and you know. Um, multiple chemotherapies was not available. In fact, if you had a leukemia on the island, we could not treat you there. Um, so it was not an uncommon thing that friends of my parents or friends or parents of my classmates who were, got cancer um, left the island and didn't return until they were dead. So 
you know, there is this unequal access to care in the United States. And I would say that this is a true phenomenon, even within the continental United States, um, because we know the barriers exist between rural and urban areas of this country, uh, having to travel for good cancer care, um, access to clinical trials, it's all actually, um, uh, it mirrors the experience of the person with cancer on the island. It sounds like you're taking a lot of measures outside what some might expect for um, a healthcare provider in terms of community outreach, in terms of translating consent forms and all of these things. Um, yeah. What are some of the changes you would like to see in helping make cancer care more equitable? Yeah, I mean, let's just focus on the equitable uh, things that can be done to increase the equity among the SGM community. You know, there are multiple things that could be done relatively quickly. First of all, when you write a clinical trial using you know, definitional terms that speak of a cancer by its organ of origin rather than by the gender it's typically associated with, would go a long way. So not saying this protocol is open to men with prostate cancer, or this is a protocol for women with breast cancer or women with ovarian cancer. You know, if you think about what that means, it, it, it implies that trans people are not eligible for your trial. And that is an unintentional thing, perhaps, but it is a, a bright red flag that says you are not welcome here. So, you know, when we talk about access to trials, the language of the trial needs to reflect who we really would like to have participate. We've done things already like increases in um, uh, eligibility by age or even lowering the age of eligibility so that more adolescents and young adults can enter these trials is really important. And they're just trying to figure out, does the eligibility criteria even make sense? I mean, all of these things are really important. Um, I think anything we can do to decentralize clinical trials, which might have been a lesson in the pandemic, should be something that, that we think about operationalizing, for example. I have a clinical trial I'm running in a very rare ovarian cancer subtype called ClearSo. And prior to the pandemic, it was required that people come to Providence for treatments. And these are treatments every two or every three weeks. People are coming from South Carolina, they were coming from Ohio, and they were boarding a plane coming. Then the pandemic hit and the FDA allowed and the drug sponsor allowed us to ship investigational product to them so that they would not need to come to Providence. And this was required because the, the risks of uh, getting COVID that COVID-19 was so high. Um, and this operationalizing of another way to do clinical trials has helped my, my trials sort of continue in, in pretty rough circumstances, you know? So I think there are lessons in this, you know, utilizing telehealth rather than in-person visits. I mean, we have learned a lot and we can operationalize quite a bit of it. Then if you think about, you know, how we can, you know, address um, equity outside of clinical trials, it comes down to, you know, making the investments in implementation sciences, sort of not saying, producing these edicts without any funding uh, is never going to work. But if you're going to say we are going to become an LGBTQ friendly space and we're going to ask everybody for um, their SOGI questions so that we have 
uh, so, so that we can be the first to do it. You have to invest in your people. You have to be able to tell them why it's important um, and how to, how to understand the questions, how, what phrases to use and what things you might wanna think about, you know, because all it would take is someone's experience outside of your, your clinic. Maybe it's the person who's parking the cars. Maybe it's someone who's working the front desk in the cafeteria to have a negative exchange with a trans person and that impacts the care that is subsequently delivered. So again, these investments in implementation, which is engaging the stakeholders, whether that be the front desk people, whether that be the medical assistants, you know, whether that be your nursing staff and um, educating them as to the rationale for SOGI data collection and how it's gonna be operationalized are really important because people want to do the right things. They just want to understand why this is the right thing. Yeah, that sounds like just some really practical and not necessarily too difficult to implement. Um, so uh, last question. In one of your blog posts, you had said that writing has been an attempt to establish a more collaborative relationship um, between clinicians and their patients. And you sort of described this as using accessible language for all. Um, mm -hmm. So how can social media be used as a tool to fight health inequity? Well, I think one of the earliest and most profound lessons I got on social media was brevity. <laughs> how to um, explain things in the least amount of character counts possible, clearly. And also how to explain things so that it's more accessible to just my peer group. And those have been really important lessons that have translated outside of social media. So I think the ways that social media can help is by, you know, democratizing knowledge. So people are have access to all sorts of information on the internet, but what the public craves is um, information provided by content experts. And that's us in the oncology world. They wanna hear what's important about the cancers they, they are concerned about by the experts who treat those same cancers. And this is where the call is. This is how social media can help because the more we can educate people, not around just the treatment aspects, but the improvements in prognosis and in screening and early detection, the healthier I think our society will be. Thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. We want to thank our guests, Dr. John Rohde and Dr. Don Dizon for speaking with us about health equity. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 74 was produced by Stephen Filippi and Christine Scalora. This is Megan Schaefer. Thank you for listening.